This is The Creative Funding Show, a podcast for authors, YouTubers, and podcasters who want to fund the work they love without selling out. Welcome back to The Creative Funding Show. I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr., and with me today is Jacqueline Isaacs. She's the Strategic Director of Bellwether Communications, where she crafts measurable, well-researched content strategies for clients. Uh, And she's also co-authored a book called To Freedom, Why You Can Be a Christian and a Libertarian, which I'm sure is not controversial at all. Oh, no, no. Uh, and it successfully raised $8,000 through Indiegogo in the summer of 2016. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Uh, so where did the idea for Call to Freedom come from? So the idea for Call to Freedom, what eventually became our book, um, dated back to, oh gosh, probably uh, 2012 timeframe. Um, the six of us that went on to write the book, our editor, Elise Daniels, and there's five of us that contributed chapters. We all met in a book club. Uh, We were meeting in Washington, D.C. The book club um, was sponsored by a Christian nonprofit based there. And it was for young professionals um, who were Christians and who um, it was providing a space for us to come together and talk about sort of faith and culture and how do we um, apply our faith at work? How do we apply our faith in this super political world that is Washington, D.C.? And most of us, you know, we're on the free market side, spanning sort of conservative to libertarians. So a lot of our conversation would would wrestle around these ideas of of proper roles of government. Um, And uh, let's see, it would have been 2014. Um, there was a conference happening in D.C., the International Students for Liberty Conference, which is for college students who are um, part of this libertarian group. And they um, had a few panels that they needed filled, and they reached out to some of us in the that happened to be in this book club and asked if we had any ideas to help fill one of the panels. And uh, so the, the six of us ended up responding to that uh, request and came up with this idea to do a panel um, it was, I'm forgetting the, the exact title, but it was about, is, is Christianity coercive? Which uh, for libertarians, if those of you listening are libertarians or no libertarians, coercion is like a big deal. And the, and the proper use of force is like a big deal in libertarian circles. Libertarians are not big, use, uh, big fans of the use of force. Right, right. And especially not from government or authorities, which is where a lot of this tension of faith and libertarianism comes from, because to ascribe to a faith means that you're accepting this level of authority um, in your life and uh, from the church, from God, from the Bible, uh, for those of us that are Christians. And a lot of libertarians just react to that um, idea. And so we, we had this whole panel about is Christianity coercive? And um you know, it was nine o'clock in the morning. It was going up against some other really interesting panels. We, we didn't have high hopes for how this was going to go, um, but we were surprised. It uh, We packed the room. There were more students there than chairs, and uh, it was just a really great conversation, a lot of really interesting um, questions, uh, students that were from Christian campuses that 
them being libertarian was uh, causing some conflict. There were Christians from secular campuses that being libertarian was really cool, but them being Christians was kind of the the source of conflict. So uh, there was just a lot of really interesting perspectives. And one thing that kept coming back up was these students were asking us for recommendations about you know what would be a good resource for us to go back to campus and share with our friends or our family um, about being Christians and being libertarians and. You know, so we're thinking back over this book club, all the books we've read over the last few years, and we could recommend a lot of books on economics or books on faith and culture um, that were written by really great scholars. But there just wasn't a single book that we could think of that really addressed the needs of these college students that are young adults trying to articulate why it makes sense for them to be Christian and to have these libertarian political philosophy. So you had this really successful panel and you're like, we should turn this into a book. And, you know, the book we want to recommend and doesn't exist, we want to be able to make that possible. And so uh, what did you do next? So it took us um, a while. We spent about a year crafting our proposal and pitching it to traditional publishers. So we didn't immediately go the self-publishing route, um, primarily because uh, there were six of us and we all had full-time jobs and we were all married or getting married. <laughs> and the idea of trying to self-publish this book on top of everything else we had going on um, wasn't something that any one of us volunteered for. So we were shopping around this book proposal and we eventually got picked up by a publisher that specialized in academic publishing. So they they did more like textbooks and classroom resources. They really liked that we were targeting college students, which is why they accepted our proposal, but they didn't have a lot of support in place for um, promoting and marketing the book once it came out. So basically they would make the book exist, but they wouldn't actually sell any copies. So what was your plan to get um, the books into the hands of students? So that's where um, the idea of crowdfunding some um, finances for our resources sort of came from. I had studied um, crowdfunding academically before, and 2016, when we actually ran the campaign, was a really interesting time in crowdfunding, as I'm sure you'll remember. Um, I believe that was the year that crowdfunding actually surpassed traditional venture capital for funding. So it was 2016. It was right in this like really interesting time to be in crowdfunding. And we decided that that would be a great opportunity for us to, one, raise some funds to support marketing the book when it came out, but also to start connecting with our audience before the book came out and and start letting people know that this book is coming, pre-order some copies, and just get some buzz generated around the book launch. Because a crowdfunding campaign creates a sense of urgency because it comes to a definite end and that timer is ticking down. It creates a sense of scarcity uh, and it uh, shows a sense of popularity. So it triggers all of these psychological factors that turn something into an event. So it's a, in a sense, it's kind of a hack, right? You were going to publish your book anyway, but by crowdfunding it, you're able to uh, make it easier to get interest to make it easier to get attention. Right. And one of the unexpected results of it was that we actually got promoted from our the academic imprint of our publisher to their um, their main um, their main brand. Um, so we we got a little bump out of the the academic 
in print because of the success that we saw through the crowdfunding campaign. So they, uh, you went from the minor leagues to the major leagues, so to speak, which also <laughs> helped, I imagine, and get the book out there. Uh, so you went with Indiegogo, which is, uh, you know, we are the show about Patreon and Kickstarter. And so far, we've had zero episodes about Kickstarter. We've only had guests on talking about Indiegogo. Uh, why did you uh, pick Indiegogo? We picked Indiegogo for a couple reasons. Um, one of them was that Indiegogo, compared to Kickstarter, was a little bit more um, friendly towards um, these creative projects. Uh, it felt like at the time, Kickstarter was a lot more about sort of tech projects and video games and that sort of thing. Um, so books seem to be doing a little bit better on Indiegogo. But then also given the controversial nature of our book, I mean, faith and politics <laughs> um, in one campaign, uh, Indiegogo was a little bit friendlier towards having that sort of controversial topic. Um, and then lastly, we had six people involved in this project, and some of them weren't comfortable with the all or nothing nature of Kickstarter. So we had the option through Indiegogo of, um, we set the goal of $8,000, but we would be able to cash out all of our money that we raised, whether we hit our goal or not. So that made our team a little more comfortable with Indiegogo. And I think that's an important thing to underline. That's probably the biggest difference between Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Indiegogo allows you to do all or nothing. Uh, Kickstarter has broadened like their political mindset a little bit. So it's not quite as narrow of a political ideology you have to ascribe to to be on Kickstarter. But it's still more narrow, some people say, than Indiegogo where they're far more laid back. But the now, what's the downside of going... Uh, you know, partial funding, you know, so why wouldn't everyone want to do that? Well, Indiegogo takes a higher cut if you do the the partial funding um, for one, but then they also, um, it doesn't quite have that sense of urgency that you were referring to before. Um, so we kind of played down the fact that we <laughs> didn't go the the all or nothing route and we marketed it as if we were still doing all or nothing and tried to maintain that sense of urgency. Which makes sense because that is, I think, the biggest appeal of Kickstarter is that people always know that Kickstarter is all or nothing. Indiegogo gives you the choice, which means you have to explain it a little bit more. Whereas uh, Kickstarter, people know, oh, the Kickstarter failed, nothing happens. <laughs> so it creates <laughs> this, you know, the real consequences, right? If you don't act and it tends to be with both of them, but with Kickstarter, especially very motivating for your backers to get out and spread the good word about your campaign. <laughs> uh, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. We had that with one campaign I worked on. We had people who we didn't even know who they were spamming on our behalf. And that was uh, a little awkward, but it was also encouraging to see that they were that excited about our project that they wanted it to uh, unlock a stretch goal. Um, but going back to your Indiegogo campaign, so you set up the campaign and it's a variable funding. What rewards uh, did you set up? So the rewards um, were actually interesting. We started researching rewards and we decided upon our reward structure before we even finalized our goal. So what I had done was I looked at other successful book projects, both on Indiegogo and Kickstarter, and looked at how they structured their rewards and what rewards were popular, the ebooks versus physical copies of the book versus signed books versus book bundles and some other um some of those other kind of reward structures and um, sort of from there projected how much we could anticipate making from each category of rewards. And from there came up with our overall goal of $8,000. Um, 
and work sort of backwards from there. I actually think that that's the better way to do it. There are some campaigns that are set up to fail because if you know all of their rewards are limited and it's almost impossible for them to actually hit their objective uh, because of how their rewards are structured. And you have to think in the real world, okay, how many people realistically do we need to get? So if you're trying to hit a $10,000 goal and your primary reward is a $10 reward, that means you're going to need to find a thousand people to back your campaign. That's a lot of people. That's more people than most people can find. Whereas if you're raising $100, you know, if your prim- primary reward, let's say it's a board game and the main level for the board game is $100, well, now you only need to find 100 people to give you $100 and then you've reached that same number. And so it's. I think that that's a good way to do it for a, for a crowdfunding campaign is to start with the rewards and then kind of estimate what you think you can hit. And you did a pretty good job estimating. So how close to your goal did you end up landing? Uh, we were at eight thousand and twenty five dollars on a goal of of eight thousand. And we didn't do that. We none of us did that final donation to push us over either. It was a genuine donation. <laughs> So you're right, you're right there on the edge. And the incentive for that is that Indiegogo takes, I think, twice as much of a percentage or a lot more of a percentage. Uh, so that extra $50 probably saved you, you know, several hundred dollars in Indiegogo fees. Yeah. Um, so for the rewards, we uh, we had everything from just a, a thank you at the lowest level um, we played with some of the early bird options. So you could get the ebook cheaper if you're one of the first. Um, I think we had first 25 people to download, to uh, pick the ebook option. Um, we had an early bird option for the paperback as well. Um, but one of our most successful reward options was just doing a signed copy of the book. Um, we did the signed copy for $35 compared to the regular paperback of $20. So for um, for just us putting our names in the book, we got an extra $15 um, per book. And in hindsight, that was probably our most successful because it, ha- it gave us the most margin on our rewards. Um, and I, I, if I could rework some rewards, I'd probably look for more ways to do that, where to, to add more value to our backers without uh, costing us for it. Because you need those big margins to cover your fixed costs, uh, like your cover design and your editing. And real quick, in defense of early birds, because I know some people are already ready to leave angry comments, because there's a faction of crowdfunding people who are big <laughs> opponents of early birds. And early birds make a lot of sense if you are not already starting with a big platform. So if you're launching a board game and it's going to fund in the first eight hours and the early birds sell out in the first 30 minutes, that's really obnoxious because if somebody's not sitting at their computer waiting for your campaign to launch, they they miss out, they're unhappy, everybody's unhappy, and the early birds didn't do you very much good. The whole appeal of an early bird is it helps you get to 60% funded faster. So campaigns that get to 60%, 99% of them go on to get to 100%. So as a crowdfunding campaign creator, your goal is not 100%. In your mind, it's got to be 60%. And one way to get there quickly and easily is to set up early birds that collectively get you to 60%. So that you're pushing yourself over to the edge. And so it, people had weeks and weeks to get these early bird rewards. It's not like they had to sit at their computer to snipe them. And I think that in this context, early birds can make a lot of sense. It, if you've already done three you know, very successful campaigns and there's thousands of people ready to buy on week one, you don't need early birds. And early birds can alienate 
people who find your campaign on week three. So that's my quick little spiel on early bird reward levels. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I do know that there are people known in the industry who would greatly disagree with me, uh, but almost all of those people are in the board gaming space <laughs> where uh, typically games fund very, very quickly. Uh so I, I want to talk though a little bit about your video. Uh, how you'd ha- y'all had a really good video, and I when I remember asking you about it, and I was thinking you'd edit it in some very expensive software. <laughs> <laughs> how did you edit your video? So um, we had filmed the video in my in our editor's backyard, um, and we also walked. Her church was about half a mile away, and we walked and filmed some scenes in front of her church. So it looked like we had this really like nice setup. Um, and then she edited it on a $5 app that she downloaded on her iPhone. And uh, do you remember what the name of that app was? You know, I don't. I should have asked her. So this is really remarkable because a lot of people think they need really expensive software. And you can actually do a lot of amazing effects right in the phone. <laughs> and uh, it's a it can be very powerful. Your phone, some people's phones are more powerful than their computers. They have an old broke down laptop that they had from college and a brand new iPhone. Your iPhone actually may be a more powerful computer in terms of raw horsepower. And you can do that editing right there on the mobile device. And she had it done in about a week because she just used it, to, uh, edited it on her spare time with her phone. Um, and we had filmed a lot of extra scenes. So we filmed several of us saying almost all of the lines in the script at several different locations. So she had a lot to work with to put it together. Which is a good way to do it. The more you give the editor, the um, better options she has when she makes her decisions on what to include in the video. If you only have one take, it's like, well, it's all going in the video. <laughs> one take from one person. I'll see if I can get the, the name of it. And if we can, we'll put it in the in the links. Yeah, we'll have show notes. So scroll down, we will find that. And uh, by the time this goes live, we'll have a link to that app. Uh, they're not paying us, obviously, for sponsorship <laughs> since we don't remember the name is. Um, going back to your Indiegogo campaign, though, what would you say was the hardest thing about running that campaign? By far, the hardest part was fulfillment. Um, it was all fun and games until the books actually came in. <laughs> um I, I really loved the part, the communicating with people. I really loved the promoting it and the video and all of that was, was enjoyable and fun. And then when we were fulfilling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books and my living room was overflowing with piles of books, <laughs> um, it, the, the rubber really hit the road. And, um, I, part of that I did to myself because I had told, my co-authors had offered to help, but I was like, no, I got it. I got it. Just pour a glass of wine, do it in 30 <laughs> minutes, you know, slap some labels right, on it and you're right. done, right? Oh, oh no. Um, but that was also a cost that we, we had factored in, but it was definitely something to keep in mind if you're planning a campaign is that, you know, it's not just the shipping, it's getting the bubble mailers and getting shipping labels and and all of that. Which I found the best prices because I did that for my book uh, or Sam's Club. They have uh, little bubble mailers and stickers at the best prices I could find, even cheaper than Amazon. Oh, real, Although really the best way to do it when possible is to get your publisher to mail directly because it's actually cheaper that way because instead of paying shipping to you and shipping to the end person, you're able to just pay shipping once and you just upload them a CSV. But some publishers are happy to do that and other publishers would rather send you a box of books and say good luck. <laughs> right, right, which is what happened with us. <laughs> um, one thing I did do though was I took a single book in a single bubble mailer to the post office 
and had them price it out for me at media mail um, ahead of time. So I didn't end up overpaying because I think that's some, some people will, if they don't know exactly the postage could end up overpaying. And when you're shipping hundreds of books, that could really make a difference. That's right. I mean, and media mail uh, for those of you in the States applies to books, CDs, and DVDs and it's slow, slow, slow shipping. It's very, <laughs> very cheap. So it's a, one of the cheapest uh, types of shipping uh, that you can do. Um, if you could do the campaign over again, what would you do differently? How would you structure it d- differently? How would you promote it differently? Yeah. So one thing I would probably do differently, I already mentioned some of the rewards, um, trying to find additional ways to add value um, that didn't cost us anything. We were a little bit limited um, because we had already sent the entire manuscript to the publisher. We didn't have the options of like adding people's names in, in the back as a thank you. Those are That's you know, a popular way that people do that. Um, but another thing that I would probably do is not run it over the summer. So since I was the one that was primarily running the campaign and I was um, a college instructor at the time, summer was when I had the most time to do it. But a lot of fundraising professionals will tell you that summer's a really dry time for giving. Um People tend to be more generous and a little more spendy. Uh, mostly, most at the end of the year. Obviously, you've got Christmas, you've got end of year giving, um, but then also going into the new year, people tend to set goals where they're going to give more or they're going to support more projects on Kickstarter or whatever. Um, but that doesn't last all year that as with all new year's resolutions that fizzles out. So in the summer, you've got people, it's harder to capture people's attentions because they're on vacation. They're on summer break from school, whatever it is they've got going on. Um, plus they're sort of in this in between where the new year's resolutions have worn out, but they're not quite thinking about end of year giving or Christmas yet either. So summer was a, a little bit of a challenge. Um, so I'd probably run it in the fall up to the end of the year if I was to do it again. Yeah, especially if you're selling something that's targeting students specifically. College students, the last thing they want to do in the summer is think about another book to read. <laughs> so it's right, a, right. A tough sell. Uh, there are other times of the year that would be better for that. Uh, I, I do know that summer can work better if you're selling some, uh, some entertainment product. So I know games do better in the summer. But this, and this is, I think, an important point. You, you can't just look at, you know, what's the best time of year, you have to look at your target audience and ask what's the best time of year for them, right? So because let's say you have a bunch of email addresses, but it's somebody's student email address with their university. If they're not taking classes in the summer, they may not check that email all summer long. And they're wanting to back your campaign. They're wanting to get that email and open it and click it, but not enough where they're like logging into their academic email account. <laughs> you know, I definitely wouldn't be doing that over the summer. And so adapting to your specific audience and getting to know your audience is uh, really key with any kind of crowdfunding, whether it's Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or Patreon. Um, it's, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give somebody who is thinking about Indiegogo? They're trying to decide if they want to use Indiegogo or Kickstarter to launch their book. Yeah. So first of all, with either of them, I would definitely recommend having a support system in place. I mean, we've all seen those campaigns that have a huge PR push right when they launch. Um, And like you mentioned before, they'll blow it out and meet their goal in eight hours. Um, But most of our campaigns are not like that unless that's like your full-time focus. 
Um, but having a good support system of friends and family can very much uh, help you get that lift at the beginning of your campaign in a similar way. And like you mentioned before, getting to 60% um, funding, which is really key because um, it help, it starts tipping some of the algorithms. You show up more in people's searches and as recommended projects. Um, and you build that momentum that people think your project's actually going to get funded. Football stadiums for winning teams have more people in them than football stadiums for losing teams. People want to be on the winning team. Right. <laughs> so for us, we were really fortunate. We had, um, so there were six of us. We were all married. Um, two of the authors are married to each other. So, But the rest of us were married to other people. So those 10 people um, between us and our spouses, and then all of these 10 people's friends and families and coworkers and um, church friends and all of those networks, um, which which really is like the, when you think about it, like that's the basic of all networking. That's the basis of all networking. There's a, a TED talk that's um, that I like that there's also a new book that came out by the same same guy called Friend of a Friend that's about this sort of the basics of networking. Um, and it's not as much about going into a networking event and meeting a stranger that you've never met before and suddenly you you come away um, with a mutually beneficial you know work proposal right right Networking is much more about that friend of a friend, the person that you know um, that can connect you to someone else. And make that sort of handshake between the two of you possible. And it's very much the same on these crowdfunding platforms that someone's much more likely to support your campaign if a friend of theirs supported it or if their family supported it or someone vouched for you and said, hey, these are really great people. Um, they've got a really interesting project and we want to see them get funded. So having that support system in place before you launch the campaign is always going to be really critical. And it really might just be your friends and family, but sometimes that's enough. And don't underestimate the power of the personal ask. And just calling somebody up and saying, hey, would you be willing to back this? Uh, especially when you're first getting started, you got to show that uh, progress. And so having somebody who you just make that awkward ask, and it's almost more sales than marketing at that point. But I found that your close friends would be willing to chip in, you know, 10, 20 bucks uh, and sometimes more knowing that they can reduce it later. And this is one thing that's a lot easier with Kickstarter than with Indiegogo. With Kickstarter, you can back for a lot and then uh, adjust your pledge as the campaign goes. Um, and I know campaigns that will do that where somebody will back for a big amount. And as the campaign gets closer to 60% and closer to 90%, they'll pull that down. Uh, so they're kind of helping in the early days. But just realize that if you barely make your goal, you are, Kickstarter will take that full amount. So don't back for more than what you're comfortable with. Um, any final uh, advice or suggestions and to, to creators who are wanting to fund their art? Um, I, I like your idea of don't being afraid to ask, right? Like it's. Um... Creators and artists tend to discount the value that they're providing to other people um, or think that, you know, people are just doing them a favor by backing them. Um, when in reality, you know, the, the books that are being created, the podcasts that are being created really do add value to people's lives. And when you're asking for that support, you're inviting people to, um, one partake of the you know partake of that value, but then also be a part of the part of that process, part of that vision. There's a there's a great essay by Henry Nowen called "The Spirituality of Fundraising." Um, so this is obviously a Christian theologian, um, but he talks about when you're asking for money, 
you're casting a vision for people about what, you know, you're, you're thinking the world can be different, even if it's just in a little way that you can make the world more beautiful through your art, or you can make the world, um, run better through your, um, you know, new program or whatever. And you're inviting people to be a part of that vision. And people are looking for that. People want to be a part of the, that, process to make the world a better place. And you're giving them opportunities to do that. And that really is valuable. And it's not just a charity case. <laughs> um, what you're doing is really adding value to people's lives. And that's that should be celebrated. That's really good. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the Creative Funding Show. Jacqueline, where can people find out more about you? Well, thanks for having me. Um, they can follow me personally on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, we'll have those links uh, in the show notes, um, or, uh, my company, bellwether communications at bellwethercoms.com. All right. And as always just scroll down uh, to see all of the links that we talked about today. You've been listening to Jacqueline Isaacs and Thomas Umset on the creative funding show. And, uh, we would, if we could, if I could make a personal ask to you, if you would leave us a review on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate that. That helps uh, our rankings and iTunes helps more people discover the show. And thank you so much for listening.